The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Michael Bolick, Frank Latuka, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for January 29th, 2021. It's your old friend Justin Robert Young. Big week, man. Uh, 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 just a, a one of those crazy weeks. And of course, like everything, it circles back to politics. So of course, we are going to talk about this GameStop stock market Wall Street bets situation and the political fallout from it. But we're going to take a little bit more of an esoteric look at it because as I was reading these stories, I realized that I have a bit of a different point of view on it. Mostly because when it comes to leading targeted internet mobs, I've got a rap sheet. (laughs) I've been doing this for 10 years, and I've got some thoughts about it in light of what has happened uh, over the last 72 hours. We're also going to uh, go through your mailbag here today. Everybody who sent in emails over the past week, including some procedural questions about the inauguration, Gavin Newsom... And exactly how COVID has affected our political cycle and if we will see any changes to it as the pandemic recedes. All that. And we're joined by a a very special guest, Jody Avragan. You uh, may have heard him on the 538 podcast. You might have heard his hosting and curating on ESPN's 30 for 30 podcast. But you can hear him now on this day in esoteric political history. We talk with him about uh, going back in time and and seeing how that affects your perspective on modern news. We talk about surviving the 2016 election as a part of the 538 podcast and the kind of pressure that puts on folks. And we get a little bit into the world of podcast creation I think it's a great chat. I'm excited for you guys to hear it. But Man, this stock market, huh? Crazy, crazy. I mean, who could imagine? Propping up an entity 20 years past its prime just so we could spite a larger common enemy. Come on. Oh, sorry, Joe. I want to read an article about uh, uh, some of the more meta elements of what happened over the last week. It's from the Washington Post. It's by Philip Bump. And, And let me start this by saying that I I don't think it's misguided. I don't think it's bad. I just don't think, from my perspective, it's the full story. The headline on it is, uh, the country is being buffeted by groups that couldn't exist 30 years ago. And I guess to that premise, geographically, I kind of agree with them. I I, I do think that sometimes we tend to whitewash our history. Uh, Some of our more kooky and out there elements combine that with the fact that news is not recorded in the same way then as it is now. And I think we can retroactively make the past a lot less crazy than it was. But in the article... Bump does his best to explain how the internet can facilitate small groups having outsized impacts in the world. 
And before he makes his way to why this brings up the dark side of our humanity, because of course he does, the article does its best to explain how small groups have reached a scale massive enough to move markets and now top the agendas of politicians who are currently balancing relief for a once-in-a-generation pandemic and a never-before-seen second impeachment trial for a president who isn't even in office anymore. Think of that. With all those issues on the docket for Elizabeth Warren, AOC, Ted Cruz, and Donald Trump Jr., this GameStop fiasco, this saga, and the restrictions on folks trying to be a part of it is what made the headlines on Thursday. Bump's answer for why this has gone as far as it has is memes. They're funny. Funny spreads. But in in my opinion, that's part of the story, but it's not the point. And before we go any further... Allow me to reintroduce myself to some of you who might only know me as a political pundit. My name is Justin Robert Young, and I have for the last 10 years been organizing highly targeted internet mobs to manipulate systems for fun and sometimes profit. The first time that I can remember doing this was on a live stream with my co-host, Brian Brushwood. We decided that we were going to all try and get a story on the front page of dig.com. Kids, ask your parents. We were going to do this with an online live streamed viewing audience of probably about 130 people. We all settled on a viral video. We all understood which link we were going to upvote. And we did. We got that video on the front page of dig.com. And we felt at that time like we had just stolen a billion dollars. Despite the fact that we were simply aiding an aggregator site to find yet another amusing video to be seen by the masses. After we realized that it didn't take a lot of people to move the needle on the internet if everybody did it at the exact same time, we started using it for our own projects, including our comedy albums. It's why we have debuted at number one on the Billboard comedy charts, not once, but twice. But it was a few years after that Brian and I really cracked the code. We crowdsourced an erotic fiction novel from our listeners. So everybody wrote a chapter. We gave very, very basic guidelines that uh, here are the main characters. Here's the central conflict. And the only way that we're going to include it is if it has as much gratuitous sex as possible. Indeed, that was the directive. Beyond the basics of keeping the same character in the center of the story, we wanted as little plot as as possible. Replace all plot with sex. Without reading the dang thing from cover to cover, Brian and I posted it on the iTunes bookstore and told everyone to buy it at the same time. They did. It rocketed up the charts and to our great surprise, stayed there. It was the staying there that got us the press coverage, tech blogs, business writers. Hell, I even wound up on public radio like a real fancy pants. This is me on WNYC's On the Media. Now, you didn't just send the book out into the world and see it climb the charts. You told your audience to buy it and give it great reviews. Yes. So how do we know that this success isn't just a closed loop? where the authors are the buyers, and that's just it. Quite simply because we don't have that many fans. <laughs> uh, you know, we've, so, we've done things like this. was the idea of a barely edited, X-rated book topping the charts funny? Yup. 
Did it allow our audience cachet and bragging rights? For sure. Did it birth memes? Oh, hell yeah. But is that why it happened? No. Our book, The Diamond Club, rocketed up the charts not because it was spreadable by way of a funny meme, but because it had an enemy, something to humble. Fifty Shades of Grey. Anybody who remembers the uh, you know early to mid-tens knows that that's all anybody could talk about. The racy content, BDSM, my word. Is this because of e-readers that people are reading smut in the airport and on airplanes? Our experiment leveraged all those feelings, frustration about overcoverage, belief the book was overhyped, and gave people a very simple way to do something about it. Buy our dumb book to show that it's not that special. And so I submit to you that if you want to understand internet-based mobs, you need to only understand one thing. Find the Death Star that they've all gathered to destroy. Getting back to Bump's article, I want to read you one quote. What the internet has done, among other things, is make it easy to hear from small groups of people and at times to elevate the voices of those small groups until they are equivalent with far larger ones, end quote. And this is a brilliant observation, one that I unironically wish I wrote. But it's not describing what I feel that Bump thinks it's describing. He thinks that it's describing the mobs. From my vantage point, it's describing the enemy of the most potent internet mobs. The media. That small group of people that are all pretty much from the same place and all pretty much went to the same schools that are inexplicably to the rest of the planet, given elevated platforms over the voices of far larger groups, a.k.a. people who don't work in newsrooms. To describe the GameStop saga without addressing the media component is malpractice, in my opinion. An abstract attack on hedge funds would probably only attract quants and Elon Musk. This went broader because the rallying cry was about the stock manipulation through outlets like CNBC. It's the media who platforms hedge fund guys to tell average day traders to sell their positions in stocks that they want to short. From that perspective, they, and I mean the hedge fund to CNBC pipeline, are cheating. And so, one part of the Reddit hive mind discovered the exhaust port to this Death Star. In this case, it was that GameStop, which totally ironically, although certainly part of the charm of this particular uh, situation, GameStop is loathed by gamers. Gamers joke about how GameStop has tortured them since they were kids. They buy a brand new game on Monday, they try to return it on Tuesday, and find that it's magically lost 90% of its value. That's ancillary. The reason why GameStop was the exhaust port on the Death Star is because it had been shorted beyond recognition. And that means that if everybody got together and push the price upward, it would be very costly. And if it was way upward, devastating to the hedge funds, this was about the enemy. And off they went. They knew 
that they were manipulating the market. But instead of average investors getting stuck with the bill, it's the hedge funds that are billions in the red. And this is where the memes come in. Because once you've done a thing, once you're making noise, the rest of the world looks over to you. And when you are building a broad coalition, the way that they bond together is memes. The funny joke that connects the person that absolutely wants to see Wall Street burn with the person who's trying to pump and dump money uh, through GameStop with the people that just don't like Jim Cramer's face. They can all agree that the picture of the, the, the Terminator robot being represented as the Redditors with $600 stimmy checks menacing the anime girl who's representing the hedge funds is hilarious. And this, this is where we get into an interesting place from the political perspective. That same crowd is now watching to see who comes to the defense of the powerful now that they're humbled. CNBC continues to platform cries for government intervention. Robinhood shut down trading because they couldn't get money enough to float the transactions. Will either result in actual protectionism by the feds, either to the hedge funds or the banks? Some politicos are already realizing that this wave is forming and they're diving into the water with boards waxed. Strange bedfellows, like I mentioned earlier. AOC, Ted Cruz, Elizabeth Warren, Donald Trump Jr. They, like the Redditors and everyone else who joined in once they saw that they were making progress, all of them, can spot a common enemy. That, my friends, is how you understand internet movements. Not why they're gathering, but who they're looking to take down. They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I showed sure did. You can always email the show at theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Joey writes in, hey, a random inauguration question. What happens if the president-elect doesn't get sworn in? Like if they're doing the parade and Biden's car gets a flat and he just doesn't get to the podium before noon... Is he still the president at noon or does the U.S. just not have a president for an hour? All right. So with some cursory Googling, here's what I found. It's not the swearing in that technically makes you president. It's the certification of the votes that makes you president. So everything that happened on January 6th, that actually made Joe Biden president. Of course, that is ceremonial to what happens in all of the state houses previously. The swearing in is him you know, doing the ceremonial part of it. But technically, if let's say there was a massive crisis that uh, uh, did not allow Joe Biden to take the oath of office or... You know, they didn't have the time to do the, you know, space ball style short, 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 short version. Then he would still be the president because Donald Trump's term ends at noon. So in your scenario, Joey, if he was in traffic trying to get to the podium for whatever reason, he would become the president as soon as noon struck. Technically, Joe Biden finished his oath of office two minutes before noon, but that did not make him the president. He became the president at noon. Ron writes. I like Ron. Stepdad is named Ron. Not was, is. Hi, Ron. 
I'm glad to hear you call out Gavin Newsom, who is my post-inauguration obsession. But I'm afraid I need to take you to task on an earlier PX3 transgression. When Mr. Newsom's French laundry adventure went public, as I recall it, you described the problem as him having gone to a fancy dinner. Dear sir, it was so much more than that. And look, Ron, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but Ron goes step by step on why Gavin Newsom is a uh, butthole for what happened at the French Laundry, including that he gave a different apology before people knew exactly what had happened. He obfuscated exactly what was happening in Napa in terms of their restrictions. He said that they took precautions when they certainly clearly didn't. He said that they were outside when, or insinuated they were outside when, as we found out, they definitely were fully enclosed. We join Ron's letter already in progress. Finally, he insulted all Californians by making it clear that while he'd done nothing wrong, he should have acted differently to model appropriate behavior for us plebs. Finally, he called it a mistake, the kind we all make. No, it wasn't a mistake. This is like a politician who has spent a career railing against people sleeping with underage kids getting caught in bed with a 13-year-old and saying, hey, we all made mistakes. Dear Gavin, F you and I hope you're recalled. I guess it, I probably should have read all of Ron's email so to see that he, he definitely built up to the pedophilia metaphor. But Ron, I'm, I'm not here to defend Gavin Newsom. Not at all. Indeed, I think if it was I'll put it this way. If he doesn't, if this vaccine thing doesn't go really smoothly from here, and I have no indication to say that it will, I think that that man might find himself recalled. He's got a hateable face. There's just that. I met him in person. And the first thing I said to somebody that knew him better was, man, he seems like, kind of too attractive to be a nice guy. And and the 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 person who knows him better is like, yeah, he's he's gotten that a lot. <laughs> so I think there's a smarm with him that that I, I I don't know how well it plays outside of super liberal enclaves. And he's officially pissed off everybody in California. He pissed off the conservatives with the lockdowns. Then he pissed off the liberals by lifting the lockdowns. And he pissed off anybody that is trying in good faith to follow along with this by switching the rules on how anything happens three times now. So trust me, I am not a Gavin Newsom fan. Uh, I would lay money now on the idea that he would be recalled because I think it's it's possible more so than it was before. And I think that the French laundry thing was a total embarrassment. The only thing that I would say is that politicians doing rules for me, but not for these stuff is kind of par for the course. Do I think it's great? Hell no. But is it dog bites man? Unfortunately, yes. Andres writes, Dearest leader, Chairman Young of the People's Republic of PX3, I've been a listener to the show since, I believe, the 2016 campaigns. It's hard to tell because your show has been such a regular part of my routine for so long, it's hard to imagine it without the Mel Brooks politics intro happening at least twice a week. I value your show because of your ability to drag me out of my political lizard brain instincts. All the way through the spectacle of the 2016 election, the panic of the new Trump order, the flock of unnerving tweets from the president himself, the 2018 battle for the House and Senate, the confusing first impeachment, the survival and most connected Democratic general election, a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, and the kicking and screaming end of the Trump era. Thank you for reminding me that the world is hardly ever black and white, and that I am often just being silly. I like to think that I'm an independent thinking moderate, but my first instinct is to cuddle under the pod save a blanket podcast and boo and hiss at those who displease me. 
Because no matter how many guns I own or how many conservative books I try to read, deep down, I know I'll always be a screaming liberal Bernie bro. I'm sure so many of us are very appreciative of your show being there not to sway us to the left or to the right, but to keep us from madness while being factually informed and joyfully entertained. Andres, I appreciate your letter. As always, I am but a humble public servant, not trying to tell you where to go, but just giving you a lay of the land. I'm like those dudes. You ever seen those dudes, the surveyors? They got the little... uh yellow like tripods that they're looking you know down down the road i guess to get the 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 literal lay of the land that's what i'm trying to do trying to do for you guys and and it's always good to hear that at least for some people it's working nick in louisiana writes here's a wild idea trump is having trouble procuring legal counsel for his impeachment defense so he decides to defend himself would they even let him in the building Could they legally prevent him from doing so without depriving him of his due process? What's he got to lose? He has a whole lot to gain from an audience waiting to hear from him. Nick, what he has to lose is being able to run again and keeping secret service and benefits for the rest of his life. Uh, Trump behaved like a man at the end of his presidency and even has until now as a good boy on his best behavior. Why? Because I think he realized he had officially pushed things too far. Now, maybe he gets a little gully going forward because it doesn't seem like he's actually going to get convicted. But the reason why he wouldn't want Rudy or he wouldn't want to try this himself is because... He wants this impeachment to come and go as fast as possible. Because at that point, his default is he's an ex-president. Which, all things considered, ain't exactly the worst thing to be. So that's his finish line. Cross that, don't become a beggar king, and then do whatever you want. Jess writes, Hey, Justin, I wanted to thank you for the efforts you take to listen to your audience when main- while maintaining your perspective. Hearing you attempt to correct your pronunciation of the word nuclear not only made me feel better discovering I wasn't the only one it bothered, though I would never bother, to, uh, bother you to say so. It continues to build my extensive confidence in your work ethic and my choice to support you on Patreon. Jess, thank you for noticing. Now I just have to fix the fact that I, I seem to say milk with an E and, and a few of the other ticks that are brought up uh, 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 to my attention. But I always want to be improving. I want to be making this show better. I want to be bringing people on that you guys deserve to hear. I want to continue expanding this franchise because you deserve it. Mitra writes, You were talking to your mom on the last episode, gotta love Gloria, when you asked her how she would engage with politics moving forward, and I found myself relating heavily to her answer. I became politically active and aware in my teenage years, which coincided with Obama's two terms. It was around the time of the Arab Spring, Edward Snowden, Syria, and then Trayvon Martin when I started to pay attention to the wider world around me. And while that interest remained... I quickly became jaded to my lack of control over it all and disengaged further. The 2016 general election was the first time in my adult life that I did not vote, including primaries and state races. And then... Trump. Just like your mom, I found the last four years to be a lightning rod of political discourse, quote-unquote. So many of my friends that weren't paying attention started to. And then came the uninformed rants on social media from friends who had just begun dipping their toes into the political waters. These last four years have been a scramble to find unbiased news sources, scour political media and journals, educate myself on the history of this country, and so much more. I've essentially given myself a civics and governments course, become so much more aware of political theory. Just like your mom, I don't see this changing. I got a feeling that this may be an unintended consequence of the Trump presidency. Mitra, thank you for writing in. 
I I hope so. I, I, I hope that people do stay politically engaged. The only thing that I hope is that we begin to understand for, for all the, the time that we talked about this is not normal. Let's understand what normal is. Let's understand where some of these fault lines are. Let's understand what the actual name of the game is. Because if we don't, then we're just going to be led around by our nose by the most hyperbolic political rants and the most emotional responses. It's the reason why I, I to me, don't see anything wrong in people being as emotional as they want. The only question is how much we respond to it. We are in control of our discourse. If we see a friend that is being uninformed and is just spouting off, likely because they're scared or righteous or whatever, we don't have to make it a part of our story. We choose to. The reality is that people have been spouting off uninformed political opinions since the beginning of democracy and likely before that. You know, uh, uh, old uh, 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 Toxoloticus was was probably uh, yelling some stuff. He was writing on a literal wall and not a Facebook wall. A really, really terrible hot take. We deserve to not engage. We deserve to create our own communities. And that is ultimately what I want to build here. And I've tried to over the last several years. And finally, Anthony writes, do you think that part of the reason this election cycle was so charged is because we really had nothing better to do? Whenever we've had crazy elections like this, for example, 2000, we still had plenty of distractions. Things like working at our jobs, going to sporting events, concerts, vacations. There were other things available to us that we could do to take our mind off it. This time in 2020, we couldn't do any of that. Or if we could, it was extremely limited. That leaves us with two things while we are staying home and safe. Watching TV and getting on social media. Do you think as our lives return to normal, we will calm down? Would love to hear your thoughts on this. Yes and no, Anthony. I believe that there's no question that the pandemic affected our, our our election cycle. In fact, it's something that's going to be talked about in our conversation with Jody Avergan in a couple seconds. But it's not like we were particularly calm beforehand. If anything, what's happening now is that there are a lot of people that are checking out of politics. There are a lot of people that are taking the traditional emotional break that did not happen after 2016, nor really at any time, from my vantage point, through really the last like three weeks. I've seen a lot of my friends kind of checking out a little bit. Now, would that happen if Trump was still on Twitter? That's a good question. Or still on Facebook? Would the media be able to uh, uh, would, would, would the media be able to resist covering him on parlor or gab? Will they be able to do it after this impeachment trial is over and he's free to say whatever he wants again? We'll see. But there is no doubt that our confinement led to consequences be they some of the reactions of the summer to the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor deaths or even what happened on the 6th. I don't think that the pandemic can be fully cut out of everything. If you would like to send us an email, you can do so at theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Among the ways that you can support the show that I have not offered before because merch is a hassle sometimes. And I'm I'm of a certain internet age where I really wanted to do my own merch because you can make a little bit more money off it and you're your own cheapest employee and 
you know, you can print out the shirts and ship them out. I don't know. I, I, I just had my own idea of exactly how I would do it. But then I just realized, you want to know what? People just want stuff they can support the show with. You guys want to be out there representing not only PX3, not only the logo, but also fun things that we've done on the on, on the program. Including something that I know was very personal for a lot of you. Because it was very personal for me. And that is being so disgusted with our options for president that we voted for somebody with true integrity. My mom, Gloria Young. Yup. Till this day, all I had was the ability to, to, to send out a tweet with that on it. I know a lot of you, a lot of you DM me, emailed me. Things might not go the way that some people want it. And you can forever tell them that it's not your fault. Because at politicsmerch.com, we now have our official Don't Blame Me, I Voted for Gloria t-shirts. And mugs. And masks. And phone cases. All of it. It is all available to you at politicsmerch.com. And these things are pretty cheap. I got uh, two t-shirts and a mask. And it was like $54, including shipping. So uh, support the show. Make sure that you uh, get yours right now. Politicsmerch.com. We also got logos for PX3, Raise the Dead Season 1, Raise the Dead Season 2, and new designs being added all the time. Politicsmerch.com. Our guest today has, in the past, worked with uh, 30 for 30 Audio. He helped develop the 538 podcast, where he was also a host. These days, you can find him at This Day in Esoteric Political History. Welcome to the show, Jody Avergan. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So your show, uh, uh, This Day in Esoteric Political History. How long? So is- easy to say, right? Just rolls off the tongue. Uh, how long have you been doing it? Um, so we are approaching about a year now, and uh, I had this idea to do the show about a year ago. At the beginning of 2020, I was leaving my job at ESPN, where I was doing the sports documentaries 30 for 30, and I had come up with this idea and found a home for it at Radiotopia uh, with this notion in the back of my head that 2020 was probably going to be a pretty interesting <laughs> election year. And actually, the original title As of the show out. was This Day in Esoteric Election History. So we were getting ready to do it, and we had artwork that said election history and so forth. And then the coronavirus hit, and it turned from you know a pretty interesting election year to a historic really intense year we kind of knew right away and so we changed the name of the show and kind of broadened the scope a little bit to say this day in esoteric political history but we also decided to go ahead and launch the show which was just this interesting experiment of launching it into the the teeth of the pandemic and i don't really have a control that i can compare it to but i i know that that was a unique experience uh trying to launch the podcast but it really ended up being a, a really kind of useful way to track not just the not just the election but something that felt like a historic year and have these moments where we looked back at small stuff big stuff but things that maybe could give us a little context and perspective and do this thing that i that i think is at the heart of the show which is an understanding that not not only is it that the present can kind of reflect the past um but the present is a product of the past and if you look to the past you can see the forces aligning Uh, over time that lead to this moment. So it's not just about interesting coincidences or things like that, but it's really about trying to get some perspective on kind of how we ended up here. What I love the most about the show, specifically in this moment, and and coronavirus is is part of it, but I think it's something that's really a, a broader element of our internet culture that has bled into our mainstream is now everything is recorded. We can make ourselves feel 
uh, uh, special because even the things that happened two days ago, we can still see video of, we can still see audio of, and it feels so much more visceral than it might have in a world where we were dependent on television or newspapers to remind us of things. But at the same time, when you look back in history, things are are often repeated. Has your perspective on news changed doing this show? Yeah, I mean, well, look, I, I'm one of those people who thinks that everything is a media story. And so I do think so much of what makes this era and any era <laughs> interesting is just basically the way in which information travels. Yes. Um, and so but yes, I mean, I think and, 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 and very closely related to that is, is speed, you know, and I just think that's the defining feature of our time is just things and information moving faster than we can really keep up with. And there's always those moments in history. Um, that's very high, high minded. To actually answer your question, you know, I think one of the key things that I've learned and, and and I sensed going in, it was part of why I wanted to do it, but was just this notion that like we have forgotten a lot, right? A lot has a lot has passed and there's actually some sort of, I don't want to use the word hope in that, but you know, there's something to be said about the fact that, you know, a lot of really epic stuff over time, it fades away, yeah. it passes, we move on, we understand it in context. And I think that there, there is, you know, I'm not trying to use, I don't, I, I don't think you should ever use history as like a, a, a bomb or a salve to kind of like paper over what's happening in the present. But no. I do think there is something important in saying, you know, this too shall pass. This is an era. Uh, there will be a moment where we move on to the next era. Uh, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't be worried right now. We shouldn't fight like hell for what we believe in right now. But I do think history, there is a fundamental lesson there. Um, and then I think, you know, that fundamental thing of just like you can look at parallel moments in the past and you're not going to find the one-to-one direct answer to how to address it, but you will find all sorts of fascinating echoes. And um, I just knew, you know, like to me one of the reasons I wanted to do this show going into the election year was I didn't want to cover the election day to day. I knew that would be crazy making and I would not get any sleep, but I still wanted to feel like I was engaging with it. And so doing a show that's about history and it's linked to that day in history is a way to sort of follow the rhythms of a political year um, and our political life while not, but you know, you're kind of looking at it askew. You're looking, you're kind of looking at the present into a mirror to look at the present as opposed to just staring right at the sun, which can sometimes be a little uh, dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the, you know, in, in projects that, that I've done in trying to bring some kind of historical context, usually uh, a lot of it isn't necessarily the idea of like, Oh, well this is a one for one that, yeah. Oh, this is happening now. Well, don't worry. 30 years ago, this happened, but it was the opposite. And that should teach us a yeah. lesson. I think that that's, that's often fool's gold, but there is, I think a comforting and understanding that this was a, a moment in time before that there were people that had these emotions. They had these instincts and, and, and stuff did happen. Is there one story that either you've covered from the past that you that affected how you looked at something that was happening currently because you 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 delve deep into it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in terms of what we've talked about on the show, I mean, one of the very first episodes we did, and it was just because it happened to be that day and it lined up on the calendar. But you know, there was a moment in 1919 where Woodrow Wilson got the flu, and he caught you know, um, and this was. Uh, and we did this episode in March or April of 2020 before we really knew what the coronavirus yeah. pandemic would look like. And certainly before we knew that our president was going to catch it, you know, but it was this moment where we said, OK, you know, we, we all we all sort of knew about the 1918 flu. But you look at that story and you're like, well, a Wilson got it in 1919. OK, so there's a reminder yeah. that. This came in waves and the second wave was worse than the first wave. And so, you know, that was a moment just by looking at the past, I was able to gird myself and say, oh, yeah, you know, this goes on. We're going to be dealing with this as we are in 2021. And then also, you know, presidents getting it are these is a big moment. Um, and so when that happened, you know, I think we understood. And and, you know, with the, with Wilson, too, I think that story about him getting sick um, and he was on his way to negotiate the end of the wind down of World War One. And he was and there. He was. He, was, he, yeah, was, in, he well, was in Europe to do it. Yeah. He started to feel sick on his way there, is, is, is the reports I've, I've read. And and then, you know, by all accounts, he was 
he was not his on his A game, and it may have really affected the way that the war was the end of the war was negotiated. And you know, it's a reminder. I think um, we talk about it on the show every once in a while, but like these moments in history, 1919, 1968, now where it feels like, oh my god, like. It's not just one big thing. Like all the big things are happening at the same time. Like we had an influenza and we had a war and and now we have, you know, a crisis of democracy and we have the, the coronavirus. But it's a reminder that those are not that's not a coincidence. Right. A big, big things beget big things, beget oh, yeah. big things. And so that's a nice sort of historical sensibility that I think I've kept in mind as we're doing this series. You mentioned before that. uh you you tend to view things through a media lens as a fellow media guy i very much appreciate yeah. that and it has been to my surprise and delight that the audience seems to enjoy some of this conversation so let me let me turn turn to you on that with your work at at 538 you were there during the oh, yeah. the, the the day after day churn and obviously everything that came after it with questions about polls and and exactly how they were they were put out there Without getting into specifics, what kind of toll does that take on on you know somebody just just trying to put out a product on on a regular basis? I mean, look, I I people have hard jobs and and you know I I don't want to act like but you know it was very oh stop hard. it look, look number <laughs> one number one I I always I I say this on the show all the time yeah. that that. The media loves to get to the main character of any news story, which is the media. The media they understand just, that. Yes, yes, so, so, enough. so, yeah, go ahead, go no, ahead. Yeah, but look, from your own 2016 was really, you know, a really like hard year in many regards. Um, you know, I hardly got any sleep. Um, it was just really intense. You know, and part of that was just because I think that we started the 538 Politics podcast. Podcasting was in this interesting moment where it just sort of rode this rocket ship of a story. And so, you know, we had a really big podcast. Uh, we were trying to get our heads around this story. And, you know, um, we were also trying to use the tools of 538 to understand a moment in American politics and in American history that sometimes those tools were, you know, not the best match. And that was one of the things that I really sort of came to think about a lot and understand as the show went was, you know, there are there are real benefits to the analytical um, approach. And I'm not just talking about polls, but I'm just talking about yeah. a sort of sensibility um, of looking at what's happening around you. But there, But that needs to be married with a real humanity and a real understanding of what we were seeing. And I thought the best work we did at 538, and frankly, like I had come to 538 from the outside and I was more than anything, I was sort of surprised at the level of humanity within that place. I had a sort of sense of like, oh, this is very, like it's all about numbers and all about all data. You know, you, yeah. yeah, but you sit around a table the day after the Pulse nightclub shooting and you're not going to look at polls, right? No. You're going to talk about what's happening to your country. Uh, and those are the moments that that I think most matter to me. And I think the moments where we're able to marry a sort of like perspective that 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 a, a analytical approach gives you with kind of really living in the moment. And I and I you know I um just just this this month you know after the storming at the Capitol, I went back and listened to. One of the very first episodes we did in 2016 um, was about the the violence at Trump rallies. Um, and this, you know, I don't know if you remember, but in sort of early, like in in the fall of 2015 and then in January, February 2016, there were there were just every rally. There was a fight. You know, people were sucker yeah. punching each other. Trump was was pledging to pay uh, the the bail for people who beat up other people for, for beat beating, up up, beating up protesters and yeah. stuff like that. You yeah. know, and we just had this moment of like, we need to look at this. We need to talk about this. And we we married it with with there had been some studies about, you know, Trump supporters and polling of Trump supporters that showed a sort of affinity towards violence and vengeance. Um and, you know, I think I went back and listened to that, you know, and my colleagues and I tried to really bring a, a level of humanity, I think, to some of those moments. Mm -hmm. um, we failed at times, too. But, you know, I think that's that's my favorite kind of journalism. And I think podcasts are really good about that. Like, it's hard not to have to be a human being when you're sitting around and talking to another human being in front of a microphone. And so I just really enjoyed kind of like the marrying of, of those two uh, when we pulled it off. You know, and that that is... A, a fascinating dichotomy because podcasting is in my for my money the most personal medium it's literally sure. people whispering into your ear that you feel are your your friends and 
what I found not only interesting about 538, but also in terms of some of your other work is trying to figure out where the information stops and the humanity begins, yeah. where where it becomes about the hosts and where it becomes about the information. And on the 538 side of the coin, I think that's, I mean, in, in political media, among the hardest things to do, because the point of a poll is supposed to be Cut yeah. through the clutter. Let's see a number. Right. Let's let, let let's figure that out. But at the same time, you can't really do that in a medium where it's all about people's opinions. And and yeah. now you're judging the hosts. You're judging the personalities for them. Well, but here's where I think I think you're largely right. But here's where I think the a five thirty eight sensibility that I came to understand and a, something I love about podcasts do do meet, which is I think that. For me, podcasts are the best medium where you can live in uncertainty. You know, okay. you can just through the tone of your voice, you can sort of convey like, I don't have all the answers. I'm asking a question and I'm exploring some, op, you know, some possibilities and we're going to talk this out, but I'm not going to give you the tidy. And I think it's just the nature of the medium. You can stop a sentence. You can start a sentence. You can, again, convey it in your tone of voice. You can pause it something and then walk it back. Whereas writing, it's just like you put the words on a piece of paper and it just sits there, you know, unmovable. Um, yeah. It's just a, it's something about the actual sort of medium itself. Now. 538, I came to understand as really a, a site about uncertainty, not about polling and data and the final number, but really about using those as a way to map as much what we don't know as what we do. And it's to start a conversation about, you know, what's changed, what isn't, what are the limitations of this? And, you know, that's a that's a subtle argument and a subtle proposition for a lot of people who want to go to a site and just see a big number and sort of have some certainty. Um, but, you know, I really came to understand that. And I really think that like Nate Silver and the other people at 538 kind of feel that too, that really what they're doing is, 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 is using a slightly more rigorous way to start a conversation about what we know and don't know than, you know, I heard something from someone at a bar or I just had this idea that I cooked up in my head. It's like, at least have your first sentence be starting from something a little more concrete, but we're always going to end up trying to marry that with our view of the world, you know, our conversations with other yeah. people, anecdotal evidence, you know, all those things kind of come together. I, and I will say from my perspective as somebody who was a listener to the podcast, by the time that all everything was said and done with 2016 and then the all caps great poll discussion kind of commenced, sure. uh, it was a lot clearer to me where 538 stood because I heard these conversations with tone. Yeah. And, yeah. and, 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 uh, uh, you know, I, I heard the, the, the panicked element of like, well, this isn't a for sure thing and we're actually higher than other people. So it, it, yeah. I, I think, I think it did add needed context. And I, and I often felt, it's funny, I, I, on that show as the host and and sort of the like designated, I give myself an out this way, but like as a designated non-poll person, I kind yeah. of felt like I was often trying to be a conduit for a general audience or, you know, or ask willfully naive questions. Um, so I would often feel like I was trying to ask a question on the part, on behalf of a listener who was maybe not, who was reading it sort of like as certainty. And so I remember, you know, a week before the election, I intentionally framed a question where I said, well, you know, if the outcome of the general election is a foregone conclusion, we should talk about so-and-so. And I knew that I said that knowing Nate would interrupt me and be like, wait a minute, the outcome of the election is not a foregone conclusion. Yeah. You know? And and I mean, because I knew that that's how a lot of people were seeing the site and seeing that moment. Um, you know, and I, and I will say like the outcome of the 2016 election and Trump's victory, you know, I think that I came to understand it. And I think we said this on the podcast, but you know, Maybe we weren't surprised, but we were, but we were still shocked. And I think that in there is the, is the sort of squaring of those two things, right? You see the world for what it is, but that doesn't mean you shut yourself off to kind of feeling it and living it and, 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 and having other ways to process it. Yeah. And just to add the, the one more element of the context argument, if somebody's looking for answers 
on the internet and they go to Google <laughs> and they say polls about the election, they're going to go to big sites like the New York Times or 538 that specialize in showing those polls with some level of, uh, level of ag- aggregation. So that story is, I'm curious, I looked for answer, yeah. answer showed up to me. If you hear it in somebody's voice and they're saying, well, remember this and remember that and this is more about uncertainty than it is about certainty, it's a totally different thing. Totally, yeah. Uh, let, let, me, let me pivot uh, uh, from here to some of the stuff that you did at uh, at ESPN and 30 for sure. 30. Uh, and this is not necessarily political, although we, we might find an angle here. One of my favorite things that, that you did was the Clippers series, all about mm-hmm. Donald Sterling. And it kind of got to the heart of a, I think, a larger conversation in terms of audio documentaries and podcasts in general and probably even a larger conversation about documentaries, but now there's a lot of audio ones. And that is, what's the line between having access to people that were there, that have a unique moment and have a unique perspective versus them being able to tell the story absent and and therefore discounting other context that was that that is uh, obviously available and and the biggest part for that was you did a lot with uh Donald Sterling's wife, wife uh, Shelly Sterling Shelly yeah. Sterling and it was great and it was awesome audio because you listen to this person who's obviously a character who obviously was in the middle of this gigantic swirling situation that involved a a mistress and her personal betrayal and yet is still in in daily contact with with her husband uh where was that decision for you as somebody mm-hmm. shepherding this project? And what are your general thoughts on first person perspective versus a larger, a larger story that comes from maybe non first person sources? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, this is, you know, something I think about a lot, thought about a lot with that project. Um, you know, for context, Ramona Shelburne, amazing NBA reporter, Julia Henderson was the lead producer on the on this project. I served, you know, in my usual editorial uh, capacity as running 30 for 30. But, you know, we talked, the three of us and all of our other editors, um, a lot about this. Um, you know, Ramona has covered the NBA for so long, has covered the Clippers and basketball in LA for so long. She has developed a deep relationship with all of the people who were in this story, including Donald Sterling um, and also Shelly Sterling. Um, and, you know, it comes down to, I'm not, you know, I'm going to spoil this for you. I'm not going to have an, a tidy answer for you at the end. No, like we had to fine. just sort of live yeah. with with what it was. But, you know, I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll talk through the some of the considerations, um, you know, you need characters in stories, and especially in audio, you need people whose voice is going to take you there. It is not there is there is not really a right around in audio. Um, you you know that it's going to be compelling when you hear people's voices. Um, and Shelley was someone who Ramona had a relationship with. We felt like was a reliable, compelling character, um, and I felt like in on balance, you know, we positioned her as not just not just being on sort of a front row observer of what happened, but also being part of the story. And I think that we showed how she was complicit in a lot of the real estate dealings, mm-hmm. uh, really awful practices with regards to how the Sterlings made a lot of their money. Um, you know, we showed a little bit of how she was involved, um, you know, at the very least turned a blind eye, if not, um, you know, kind of allowed and enabled Donald's overall behavior. But, I think we got some criticism and we got some and just, you know, to ourselves as well and had these tough conversations about kind of is this is this on balance tipped a little in in Shelley's favor. And I th- I think one of the dynamics that was going on and I think about this a lot when I watch stuff or when I listen to stuff or when I make stuff is that there's something that inherently happens when you just have someone as the predominant as the predominant voice. Yeah. There's just a, a baseline level of audience sympathy, I think, that just kicks in when you just sort of hear someone and you become familiar with someone, even if they are a bad person or an sure. antihero or, you know, an antagonist. If you just live with them, especially as you were saying in audio, which is, you know, intimate in all these special ways, like you're just going to sort of like lean a little in their direction and lean in their favor. And I think there was some of that going on where people were listening and feeling as if it was in Shelley's perspective just because they'd spent so much time with her because yeah we had that access and so forth but I, but that's not to 
that's not an out. I mean, that's something you have to consider when you make stuff. But, you know, you get it in you, when you watch documentaries about like serial killers. Sometimes it's just like, well, I'm just spending so much time with this person. They're the protagonist. They're the heart of the story. And I think we just inherently something in our brain is like geared to find some level of sympathy or connect connection if you're going to tell a compelling story with a central character that central character is going to have some level of connection uh it's something i think about a lot it's really fascinating i haven't seen anyone really square it like how do you make a central character who you still then can say this is an awful person or this is you know whatever like yeah if anything i think that our patience is kind of waning or at least my patience is kind of waning on on some of that and part of it is because we've seen such a documentary boom like we've yeah. seen so much in terms of the podcast genre so much in terms of streaming has brought about a billion different documentaries it seems like there is just you're, you're always spoiled for choice which means and maybe this is just my perspective as somebody who who tries to do stuff like this is that you look at it critically you try to dissect it but uh you know watching the vow on hbo which for whatever other criticisms people might have of it, the, the big tease at the end is, oh, we get to talk to this awful cult leader next season. Right. And it's like, wow, do I have no interest in that? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I've, I'm, you convinced me in this first season that he's an awful person, yeah. that all he does is yeah. manipulate people. But at the same time, if this story has any interest at all, it's because of, of, yeah. of this person. And I wonder, do you get a sense that the audience's tastes are, are are changing one way or another in terms of hearing from people that they might disagree with or or find onerous. Um, that's interesting. I mean, I th I think this may not be exactly an answer to your question, but I definitely think you know we're coming off of a three four year period, and at thirty for thirty, we played us maybe very very small role in this, but like within audio and within documentaries in general of these kind of like, I the way I put it is. Basically, every doc, every prestige documentary over the last five years, at some point in it, there's a moment where you go, wait a minute, is this a cult? Like, that's yeah. that's like kind of the like episode four, the second act of episode four is always like, that. <laughs> wait a minute, is this a cult moment? If if it's not just a cult outright from the beginning. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I'm starting to get a little fed up with is this a cult stories, you know? And I think that there's, you know, whether it's Tiger King or Theranos or, uh, you know, Bikram Yoga, which we did, um, or, you know, whatever. Like, it's just like, maybe we should just find some stories. And even, you know, like the Tiger Woods documentary, which just came out on HBO. Like, you know, incredible filmmaking team, really good access, super compelling character. And like, from the very first moment, it's just super somber music. Yeah. Like juxtaposed, like moments of, you know, and, and, I'm, and the part of me is just like, can we at least have like half an hour of the fact that like, for a lot of people watching Tiger Woods was like the greatest thing that ever happened to them. Yeah. And like, where's my like happy, you know, like energetic music. And then we'll get to like the philandering. But you know, this isn't, this isn't. Kissinger or whatever like this yeah. is not a war criminal like this is a this is a golfer who then had like a really tough personal you know f uh, failings um but you know I just like I'm not trying to beat up on the Tiger Woods documentary but I just think there is this like sensibility of everything has to have this dark sinister compelling side uh, you know compelling dark side to it um that I hope we're maybe and it's a product of the times you know it's a product of the fact that we're living in dark sinister <laughs> cultish times uh but you know part of me wants to just like listen to and and this was a big thing i talked about at five at, 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 at 30 for 30 and we did do some of these and they were my favorite things but i, I talked about romps like you, there should just be stuff that's just fun to listen to yeah you hit play and it's just 45 minutes and it's super fun and you know then you're done and i've always feel like there's room for the cult stuff and there's room for the romps because there can still be challenges out. there can still oh, yeah. be things that we yeah. that we find that they grow and and they hit a wall and they yep. achieve it just doesn't all always have to be like oh this is financial ruin or or you know uh, yeah. giving yourself over to a higher cause yeah yeah and it's tough you know sometimes it's tough to find that because i think when you're dealing with ruin or cults or life or death like the stakes which is the thing you're always looking for in a story are a little more obvious um but can you tell you know which is why we've done we did a couple stories at 30 for 30 about about gambling and yeah. about like one was about a sort of Baccarat heist and one was about the first ever World Series of Poker. And both of those were like light and pretty fun. But you also, what I love about gambling stories is that like every five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever, you can just sort of stop and be like, 
in so many words say like, oh, by the way, you know, there's two point five million dollars on the line. Yeah. So, you know, those of you who want steaks, steaks. there you go. Ah. And then you just move on with your story. Right. Steaks so, okay, on demand. Yeah. Exactly. So I love gambling stories for that reason. Uh, I'll tell you what, I could talk to you about deconstructing podcast stuff uh, all day, but I will, but I will let you go. This day in esoteric political history is available now three days a week, right? Tuesdays, Thursdays, and and Sundays. Uh, I would greatly encourage everybody to go download it. Uh, Jody Avergan, thank you so much for joining us. This was great. Thank you so much. What a great chat, huh? Nice having Jody on. I would love it if you guys uh, enjoyed what just happened, that you go let Jody know directly at Jody Avergan, J-O-D-Y-A-V-I-R-G-A-N on Twitter. Just always a good time to let the guests know that they brought it. Reminder, if you want to email the show, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is at px3tweets. You can get our Twitch live four days a week, px3live.com. Find the schedule there. Our newsletter is px3newsletter.com. And if you want to share this podcast with somebody you know and love, px3podcast.com. Remember, don't blame me. I voted for Gloria t-shirts at politicsmerch.com. You want to hit me up with a one-time payment? You can go to paypal.me slash payjury. Or you can be like Aaron Clawson, who sent me a dollar on Venmo. I'm just going to keep saying names of people that sent me do- I don't know why. It's like the least efficient way, but it just something delights me about getting a dollar on Venmo. Justin-Young-20. You can also send me anything that you would like in the mail, uh, including checks or money. Someone just sent me <laughs> Somebody sent me like a dollar bill. It was cool. P.O. Box 10853, Oakland, California, 94610. That's how you do that. But of course, takepoliticsseriously.com is how you support the show via Patreon. That's where you can get our bonus episodes. The $3 level, you get one on Monday, get one on Thursday. Yesterday's was a a business, business, business podcast because of everything that was happening with the stonks. But if you're at the Titanic, $10 tier, that's when you get your name read at the end of the show. Like, I love you, TNT, Dr. G, The Gen, Kathy Mack, Headphones, Neil, Onward to Georgia, Captain Bunzo, Jay Sulu, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle-Aged Mike, but what happened to Tex? Get a bucket and a mop. Cujo, Idris, Jacob Wilson, Berkeley, Steven, Justin Egan, Dotcom Junkie, Diana, Sunny Smiles, Tempest, Fugit. Hey, Dr. Bird's here. Uh, Jason from Magnolia, Delta Credit Card Processing, D-Laser, Hashtagus. Deebs is going crazy for this. Deebs loves you guys. J- Alec, Government Unfiltered, Andres, Archie, Darren. Here we go. Olin and Angela, DL, Kyle, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, Just Another Pilot, Jim, D. Really, Frozen Summers, J. Pink, and Andrew. You want to get your name read? Again, Take Politics Seriously is where you head. Sign up at the $10 tier. Which brings us to the end. Until next time, my name is Justin Robert Young. Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics, but this is the only program that dares talk about Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.